Well, good morning, everyone. If you would turn in your Bibles, we are back in 1 Timothy chapter 2, finishing up our discussion. Pastor Andy mentioned how a number of us love to think that we're very intelligent when it comes to certain matters. One of the more useless things that I love to study um, revolve around history. I love uh, World War I and World War II history. Uh, hasn't proven to help me a great deal in uh, day-to-day life, but still enjoy studying it. And one of my favorite things to study are, are those organizations that kind of dealt, um, dealt in warfare behind the scenes. One of the most famous examples of that was the Special Operations Executive, or SOE, an organization created in Great Britain in 1940 in an attempt to combat Nazi enemies, specifically within German-occupied territory. This organization was tasked by Winston Churchill to set Europe ablaze. But they did so in ways that we typically don't think of when we think about war, for their warfare, their, ba- their battlefield, is found all throughout Europe. Their soldiers were dressed in civilians' clothes, and their efforts really revolved around things like espionage, sabotage, and just assisting smaller local resistant groups throughout Europe. In their efforts then, these soldiers were required to, to fly completely under the radar, to look completely anonymous and unimportant, so that the enemy troops would in no way feel threatened. While both men and women served in this role, many historians agree that it was women who proved themselves to be particularly skilled to play out this part. The reason being, according to many, was that as women, they were able to quite naturally go ignored by male troops. And so these female spies could easily cross over tightly guarded security checkpoints without being checked, without being searched, because, well, they were assumed to be innocent. They were seen as letter couriers, as regular civilians that needed no concern. Yet these women proved themselves to be incredibly brave and courageous soldiers, carrying out work in complete anonymity, work that was completely ignored by the vast majority of Europe, yet work that people like Winston Churchill and those in charge knew was essential to the overall mission. For without their efforts, they would have been unable to continue to push their mission across all of Europe in the midst of being bombed relentlessly back in London. We understand that in the course of war, there are many people like those men and women that fight behind the scenes. But oftentimes, we still only think of war in terms of the more glorious roles, glorious positions that can be seen by everyone. The reality is it requires all sorts to conduct successful attacks. We begin with that imagery because as we turn back to 1 Timothy chapter 2, it is essential that we enter into it with that mindset. For so oftentimes when we read passages like 1 Timothy 2, we look at it as if Paul is writing some how-to list of how to have a successful worship service, as if Paul is just addressing some mere cultural concerns that he has about the city of Ephesus, but we understand Paul's concerns are much greater than that. For Paul does not write to Timothy just merely as a pastor, but, but as someone who is engaged in warfare. And Paul understands that in Ephesus, there are significant threats to the stability of the church, And Paul needs Timothy then to understand that in order for their mission to be accomplished, they need everyone on the ground. They need everyone to play their God-given roles so that the gospel could be proclaimed, so that the focus could be maintained, and so that God's people could flourish as God intended. As we'll see today, the plan that God has instilled is at times confusing sounding, to say the least. But it is God's plan. 
And as such, as we examine these words yet again, it is vitally important that all of us, both men and women, appreciate this text, not just as a call to women, although it certainly is applied, but as a call to everyone. For the principles gleaned from these verses, once again, apply to the war in which all of us are waging. Those instructions are given to us yet again. In verses 11 through 15, our focus will primarily be in 1 Timothy 2, 15, but for the sake of context, let's read these verses once more. And begin our time. There in verse 11, Paul writes to Timothy, A woman must quietly receive instruction with entire submission. But I do not allow a woman to teach or exercise authority over a man, but to remain quiet. For it was Adam who was first created and then Eve. It was not Adam who was deceived, but the woman being deceived fell into transgression. But women will be preserved through the bearing of children if they continue in faith and love and sanctity with self-restraint. Now, I do not stand here and pretend that this is not a challenging statement. But what I hope we see is that the aim of Paul is not to confuse us, but to comfort. The aim of Paul is not to come up with some new culturally specific application, but the aim of Paul, just like always, is to give us the same marching orders over and over. As we examine these marching orders today, we will see Paul's reminder that calls us to first and foremost understand the threat Second, to trust the plan that God has initiated. And finally, to then continue or walk in faithfulness. As we begin considering that, let us one more time pray that God guides us and blesses our discussion. Join with me in prayer, if you will. Father, again, we thank you for today. And just as Pastor Andy already read out of Romans, we come to you for we recognize you are infinite in your wisdom and knowledge. And that infinite knowledge is on display in this text today. For the strategy that you have employed in the proclamation of your word and the preservation of your people is not the strategy any one of us would choose. And yet, generation after generation after generation, we are reminded that this is your word and your will is certain. And so, God, as we read these words today, we pray that we might not be utterly confused by what is revealed. Might we not be overly offended. But might we see the wisdom in your word. Might we as your people take very seriously the threat set before us, a threat that is not found in our culture, but is found in much darker places. In response to that threat, God, might we daily strive to play out the role you've given us. Might we daily strive to encourage those around us to play out the role as well. And in so doing, might we be confident that the battle in which we are engaged is not a lost cause but it is destined to end in glorious victory because it is in your good hand, God. Bless our time now, we pray. In Jesus Christ's name, amen. Well, as we begin looking at this text, specifically verse 15, we begin with this overarching concern that, that we as believers must be careful to really understand and appreciate the threat that is so concerning to Paul here in Ephesus. That threat is represented in this language of women will be preserved or saved through childbirth. Now, oftentimes, our focus immediately jumps to that concept of childbirth, and we'll get there, I promise. But the much more important overarching question in this, of course, is why do women need saving? What exactly are they being preserved from? Why is Paul so concerned here as he writes to Timothy? In answering that question of what women are being saved from, there are numerous interpretations that are thrown out. If you were to do any research on this text, you would come across many of those suggestions. And while some of those suggestions can hold a bit of water here and there, 
It's important to first note what Paul is certainly not suggesting. For instance, I do not think Paul is suggesting any kind of promise that women are physically preserved in childbirth if they're faithful enough. That is how some people interpret this text. That sounds somewhat odd to us, but those individuals who are focused primarily on the culture of Ephesus naturally read that cultural meaning in here. For in Ephesus, loss of life in childbirth was a very common concern, as it was throughout the ancient world, upwards of 35-40%. And specifically in the city of Ephesus, one of the primary goddesses that the pagans worshipped was Artemis. As perhaps we've mentioned in the past, Artemis played a huge role in the daily life in Ephesus. For Artemis' temple is one of the seven wonders of the ancient world. So massive impact, massive influence over the city of Ephesus. And Artemis, specifically, was praised as the protector of women. And so if you are a pagan woman in Ephesus and you're giving birth, it was quite natural for you then to pray to Artemis, to perform some sort of act of ritualistic sacrifice to Artemis, hoping that she would preserve you through childbirth. Some people then read this as Paul saying, it's not Artemis that protects you, it's God. And so just be faithful to God and, and he will preserve you. The problem with that, of course, is that there's no such promise in Scripture for physical protection in the midst of the fallen world. We certainly pray for that protection. We pray for good health. But Paul, of all people, understood the reality of, of pain in this life. He understood that people were being persecuted, that Christians were dying, and that included... Christian women, even in childbirth, and sort of promise that that faith would then result in physical protection would would go against general Pauline theology. And so we understand the threat here isn't just the threat of physical childbirth. Nor is it, as some people suggest, the the threat of, of losing one's salvation. Believing that line of thought, some people suggest that Paul is suggesting some sort of extra stability that women can throw in into their salvation. As if faith in Christ isn't enough. And so they will suggest, Paul is saying, women who are faithful and have kids are extra secure in their salvation. That that is the means by which they are saved. But again, there's many, many problems to that. And I trust none of you in here would would buy into that line of theology. The main reason why that is a complete lie, of course, is it flies in the face of the very clear gospel that Paul is frequently proclaiming. Paul is not shy about speaking of the only means of salvation. Even in this letter to Timothy, Paul has already spoken to that. If you just turn back to 1 Timothy chapter 2, verse 5, he already wrote, For there is one God, one mediator between God and man, the man, Jesus Christ, who gave himself as a ransom for all, the testimony given at the proper time. The gospel is the gospel of Jesus Christ. We are saved purely through his finished work. It has nothing to do with anything we can add, certainly not the idea of childbirth. And so that, too, is a mistaken and overly simplistic interpretation. Finally, I think it's safe to assume that Paul here is not speaking poetically of the gospel. This is another popular opinion thrown out by many. That is to say, Paul, when he speaks of being saved through childbirth, is saying that, that women are saved through the birth of the child, namely Christ So Paul here is speaking some veiled reference to that long-awaited birth of Christ. And that one sounds a little bit better, to be fair. But again, it doesn't make any sense once you examine the text. For for Paul is saying how women are preserved. And so it would make no sense that that Paul would say women are preserved through Christ when really it's both men and women. So again, that doesn't appear to be what Paul is saying. Now, in order to really appreciate what Paul is saying, I think it's important to see not just what he says here in 1 Timothy 2, but if you jump ahead to 1 Timothy 4, specifically verse 15 and 16, you see Paul use this exact same language when speaking later to Timothy and the role that Timothy plays in the church. 
Look there and follow along with me and see this, this meaning of salvation or, more importantly, I think, preservation. There in verse 15 of chapter 4, Paul wrote, Take pains with these things, be absorbed in them, so that your progress will be evident to all. Pay close attention to yourself and to your teaching. Persevere in these things, for as you do this, you will ensure salvation both for yourself and for those who hear you. It's the same language in 1 Timothy 4. Now in 1 Timothy 4, is Paul saying that, that Timothy somehow can save the people in Ephesus? That by preaching good doctrine, Paul can somehow rescue people from the domain of darkness? Well, obviously not, from what we already said about the gospel. But by preaching good doctrine, by being a man of high character, Paul is saying you, Timothy, can remove all hindrances. You can ensure that the people under your care will be preserved, for they will not be distracted by your influence. They will be kept on track. And so by your activities, Paul is saying to Timothy, you can help preserve them, ensure their salvation. It is in light of that text that as we jump back to 1 Timothy 2, I, I think that's what Paul is saying, that, that women are saved, they are preserved. The question still remains, however, of course, is what are they being saved from? If not from their sins, what is the threat here? Well, the answer to that question, I think, is found within the larger paragraph of 1 Timothy 2. As we look back at 1 Timothy 2, what I want you to see is, is the threat here, the reason why women are in danger as well as the rest of the church, is because of the threat of Satan. Specifically, the deception of Satan. Look with me, if you will, again at verse 13 and 14, where Paul wrote, For it was Adam who was first created, then Eve. It was not Adam who was deceived, but the woman being deceived fell into transgression. But women will be preserved through the bearing of children if they continue. You see, it's directly tied to this reference to the fall. And you've been with us for these last few weeks. Hopefully that makes sense, for you might remember that Paul's entire argument here regarding the role of women is, is founded not in the culture of Ephesus, nor in any story that's unfolding within the New Testament church. It is grounded in a much more ancient story, specifically the story of the creation of man and the fall of man. That's what everything of Paul's argument is is tied back to. That is the danger that he's saying is threatening the stability of the church at Ephesus. To help make sure we understand the connection there, it's important to make sure we understand that original deception. While we don't have time to read through the entire narrative, I do encourage you to turn back to Genesis chapter 3 so we can remind ourselves of, of what exactly happened in that deception. In that familiar story, or story that is familiar to many of you, you of course read of the creation of man in 1 and 2. And in that original created order, we see God instill certain words of instruction and patterns that mankind is to follow. Namely, Adam was to lead his wife, Eve was the helper of her husband, and together they would have domain over all creation. Yet as we come to Genesis 3, we see all of that turned upside down. This takes place, of course, in Genesis chapter 3, beginning in verse 1. Again, there we read, Now the serpent was more crafty than any beast of the field, which the Lord God had made. And he said to the woman, Indeed, has God said, You shall not eat from any tree of the garden. The woman said to the serpent, From the fruit of the tree of the garden we may eat, but from the fruit of the tree which is in the middle of the garden, God has said, You shall not eat of it or touch it, or you will die. The serpent said to the woman, You surely will not die. For God knows that in the day you eat from it, your eyes will be opened. You will be like God, knowing good and evil. 
When the woman saw that the tree was good for food, that it was a delight to the eyes, and that the tree was desirable to make one wise, she took from the fruit and ate. She gave also to her husband with her, and he ate. And the eyes of both of them were opened, and they knew they were naked, and they sewed fig leaves together and made themselves loin coverings. What we see in this ancient story, of course, again, is the complete reversal of what God intended. For instead of Adam leaving Eve and their dominion over the earth, you have Satan taking on the form of a serpent, animal kingdom, approaching Eve, the helper, deceiving Eve, and, the e, and then Eve able to lead her husband, who was lazily just standing by, doing nothing. The result of this deception, then, of course, was the fall. And as you move from that story through the Old Testament, through the New Testament, you see that was not the end of deception. For Satan did not finish his work in the garden. No, as, as you read the story of God's people, you see deception rear its ugly head over and over and over again. For in the story of the Exodus, you see that deception take root when they're wandering in the wilderness. And as soon as things get hard, well, they question the goodness of God. They assume this cannot be his plan. This cannot be good for them. And so they insult God. They insult Moses. God's wrath comes down on them time and time again. Once they enter into the promised land, they're given the very clear law, very clear instructions of how they are to live, and they're told, as long as you follow this law, there will be order, there will be peace, there will be prosperity. And what do the Israelites do? Well, they question the law, they disobey the law, chaos ensues, they get kicked out of the garden, they beg to come, or they get kicked out of the land, they beg to come back, and over and over and over it happens again. It should not surprise us then that when we jump even ahead to the New Testament and 1 Timothy, we see the same thread of deception rearing its ugly head over and over and over again. And, and Paul makes it abundantly clear where that deception is coming from. Look, if you will, for instance, just in 1 Timothy chapter 3. In chapter 3, verses 6 and 7, when speaking to elders, as Josh will be speaking to here soon, Paul wrote this, An elder must not be a new convert so that he will not be conceited and what? fall into the condemnation incurred by the devil. That's the threat to elders, Satan's temptation, Satan's deception. But instead, he must have a good reputation with those outside the church that he will not fall into the approach and the snare of the devil. Again, deception, Satan at work. Jump ahead to 1 Timothy chapter 4. Beginning in verse 1, Paul wrote, But the Spirit explicitly says that in later times, some will fall away from the faith, paying attention to deceitful spirits and doctrines of demons. Again, what is the cause of the deception? It's demons. It's Satan. It is this dark spiritual realm that is at work all around us. Later on in the text that we read just a few minutes ago, in chapter 4, verse 15 and 16, again, he wrote that Timothy must take pains with these things. He's told in verse 16 to pay close attention to yourself so that you're teaching so that as you do, you will ensure salvation for yourself and those who hear you. Again, there's a threat at work. One more in Ephesians chapter 5, or 1 Timothy 5, verse 14 and 15, writing to younger widows. Paul again writes, therefore I want younger widows to get married, bear children, keep house, to give the enemy no occasion for approach. For some have already turned aside to follow Satan. We'll stop there. It seems that even in a, a modern city like Ephesus, that that ancient foe Satan still has a stronghold of what's going on. And regardless of how well educated the people of Ephesus were, regardless of even how faithful someone like Timothy was, Paul understood that the enemy is at work. 
that he will use any and every method to sow deception within the body because Satan knows that the result of deception is disorder. And when there is disorder in the church, chaos ensues. When chaos ensues, the gospel is lost. For the people of God are distracted. The people of God begin just debating amongst themselves, dividing amongst themselves, treating each other in anger and hatred in a loveless manner. All the while, of course, completely missing the whole purpose of their existence. Paul understood, as one commentator wrote, that among this Ephesian church, which we read of both in Ephesians as well as 1 and 2 Timothy, there were professing believers who loved controversy, who denied the future resurrection, as we see in 2 Timothy, who promoted actively strife and anger, as we'll see in 1 Timothy 6, who even took advantage of vulnerable women in 1 Timothy 3. These are all professing believers, These are all dangers that lurk within. These are all examples of what happens when the threat of Satan is not taken seriously. It's a vitally important thing for us to understand as believers, isn't it? For so oftentimes, in the midst of our own culture, in the midst of our own striving to honor God, we can miss the reality of that threat. We can speak of, of our great enemy, that evil liberalism that lurks outside these walls. We can speak of some political enemy. We can speak of those other denominations. We can speak of all those other people that fall far short of what we strive to do. And all the while, as we complain about the outside world, we can fail to see that Satan can very easily be at work amongst us. And when we we reduce our enemy to mere political players, we play into Satan's hands. For as Paul very powerfully reminds us in Ephesians 6, we are not waging war against flesh and blood, but it's against Satan, the prince of the power of the air. He is the one we're waging war against. And if Timothy, if the Ephesian church, and if believers today are to successfully carry out the mission, we must really begin here, taking very seriously why this call matters, taking very seriously what lurks beneath those areas of disagreement in our lives, those moments in which we're tempted to respond in slander and anger. Satan was at work in the garden, he was at work in the wilderness, and he is equally at work in Cape Girardeau. That's the threat. And so if we were to follow out our marching orders, we do so by understanding this need for preservation, a need that was experienced by men and women then, specifically women here in two, and a need we still have today. Understanding that threat, however, is not enough. For while it is scary enough to consider, we do not yet see the second very important question. That second question being, well, it's good and well to understand women need to be saved, but, but what exactly are they being saved? How, by, how exactly are they being saved? That's where we get to our second point. We're told to trust the plan. Once again, understanding this threat, we read verse 15. But women will be preserved through the bearing of children if they continue in faith and love and sanctity with self-restraint. I kind of wish Paul would just leave out the childbearing part and get to the faith and self-restraint. That'd be a lot easier. But it would also miss the grandeur of Paul's argument. It would also miss the weightiness of what Paul is trying to communicate. That weightiness, sadly, is oftentimes missed again 
by people's overly simplistic interpretations of this text. Once again, if you look up the meaning of of childbirth here, of what he's saying women must do, there are numerous suggestions made by by outsiders. Once again, those people who are entirely fixated on the Ephesian culture and the the simple act of childbirth are are saying Paul here is is referencing some cultural habits of of using maidservants and, and individuals to help preserve women and make sure that they live through it. Equally misguided on the far other opposite of the spectrum are those people who would read this verse and say, okay, well, women are preserved then by the act of having babies. And so Paul's saying, ladies, stay at home, keep those shoes off, and just make sure you're perpetually pregnant. You do that, you're good. That's not, that's not accurate, is it? We know that's not the case. And I jokingly refer to that interpretation because I think it's important to see it's clearly not what Paul is saying. We know that's not what Paul is saying because we see elsewhere that's not the treatment Paul has of, of marriage and childbirth. And while Paul has certainly a very high view of marriage, and he does, we see that in Ephesians and elsewhere, Paul also says in passages like 1 Corinthians 7 that if you, if you can stand not being married, just stay unmarried because you can be more devoted to the church that way. And certainly if Paul is saying women are safe through childbirth, he would not be encouraging the Corinthians to just stay unmarried. Similarly, Paul would have understood the simple reality of the fact that the childbirth is not something that that is given to all women. We'll talk about that here in a moment. He understood, again, the reality of women dying in childbirth. As a great student of the Old Testament, Paul would have understood the reality of of barrenness, that that struggle. And so Paul, of all people, would, would never have the audacity to claim that women who give birth are somehow closer to God. Again, that's a very childish reading of the text. To understand the grandeur of what he's saying, then we have to appreciate the fact that Paul is simply stating or referencing childbirth as an example of of womanhood. As a a, a synecdoche, as many people point out, that is just one example that represents the whole experience of a woman. But even if you acknowledge that that, that Paul is using childbirth as one example, the massive question, of course, is well, why that example, Paul? What on earth does childbirth have to do with with the fall of man? What does childbirth have to do with the idea of of being preserved and persevering in the faith? This is a challenging example for Paul to shine a light on. And I think, unsurprisingly, Paul understands that. Paul is not accidentally or just randomly choosing childbirth to shine a light on. Paul is very specifically using this example because, again, he's tying it to the much greater picture, the much greater narrative that's being told of all of humanity. For consider, again, the context in which Paul is is driving his argument. Paul's focus is not on the Ephesian culture. It's not on the New Testament church. Paul's focus, Paul's entire argument, is wrapped up in the story of what? Creation, the fall of man. We've seen that order explored previous weeks. The reason why women are to follow men within the church, Paul ties back to the created order. The reason why he says women are to remain silent within the church is tied to that picture of deception. And the reason why childbirth comes back into play here is because it is that same topic that God immediately points to in the story of the fall. For consider what childbirth was in that original story. Again, turn back to Genesis 1 through 3. 
as many of you already know. The idea of childbirth in creation was, you might say, a pure good. Adam and Eve were given the great cultural mandate to be fruitful and multiply. And it's family Sunday, and so I'm not going to get into the details, but we understand the basic meaning here, right? They're to have kids. And in the created order, this is a blessed, beautiful, good thing. A wonderful gift given to humanity by which they would be able to populate the entire earth. It was a role, of course, that was taken on by Eve, for she alone could carry the child by God's good design. And it was, by all accounts, a gift. But then something happens. For we have the story of the fall. We have Adam and Eve deceived, following after the leading of Satan. And in referring to that fall, as God speaks with creation, we see God speaking this curse upon his creation. And in Genesis chapter 3, verses 14 through 19, we see God speak on on the results of the fall, this curse, a curse that at times has universal implications, that is, some of these are felt equally by men and women alike, but many other implications are felt uniquely by the specific parties he references. And so in speaking to the serpent, that is Satan, he speaks of his future crushing. In speaking to Adam, that is the husband, he speaks to the toil of work and how it will no longer bring pure good, but it will be frustrating. And in speaking to Eve, God speaks these words in Genesis chapter 3, verse 16. To the woman he said, I will greatly multiply your pain in childbirth. In pain you will bring forth children Yet your desire will be for your husband, and he will rule over you. Here in these few words, we see the tragic shift that takes place with with this role of childbirth. We see this activity, this ability that was once pure and good and joyful, now take on this element of pain, of frustration, Floss. Most obviously, this pain is, is referenced here and represented by the actual physical pain that is experienced in childbirth, a pain that is still just as much real today as it was in post-fall Adam and Eve's life. But of course, we understand that that pain is felt in numerous other ways, don't we? For there's the pain that comes in the loss of life in childbirth. We mentioned already that mortality rate that was very common in Paul's day. Tragically still occurs at times today. By the grace of God, it's much lower. That pain is still there. Even in addition to that, there's the the pain and real struggle of of infertility. This plays a huge theme in the Old Testament. Huge theme of faithful, godly women who long to be able to take part in this act, who long to be able to provide a child, and yet their body's fallen without them understanding why, they they can't. It's painful, deeply painful. And even in addition to that, if if they happen to get pregnant, we understand the real pain of, of miscarriage. A deep, horrific pain. One that would have been felt by countless women in the Old Testament, by countless women in the New, and a pain that many of you in here still know very well today. 
My wife and I knew that pain. Gone through a miscarriage, went through a season of infertility, and it was miserable. Miserable. Because it's such a good thing you long to experience, and yet, for reasons beyond your understanding, it's not allowed. It's taken away. And in the midst of this pain, we understand that it is something that is experienced, yes, both by the man and woman, but I think it's safe to understand it is uniquely experienced by the woman. And it's a pain many of you women know all too well. And so when you read the words of Genesis 3, you immediately, no doubt, understandably ask Paul, why then Paul this role? If you know how painful this is, Paul, if you know how fallen we are, Paul, why do you highlight this? I think the reason simply is because even though pain is introduced, what is God still calling the woman to do in Genesis 3? It still is the call for childbirth. It still is the reminder that this is still the plan. As painful as it is, it is the plan that the people are put into. And responding to that, of course, brings with it a number of temptations. And there were no doubt ongoing temptations in that ancient world, certainly in Paul's day. In Paul's day in Ephesus, some individuals writing to the culture speak of this idea of the new Roman woman. Again, you don't want to give too much credence to the unique culture of Ephesus, but this would have been common in Paul's day. And you see it pop up its head in numerous letters of Paul. For there was this tendency of some women in Paul's day to try to throw off any and all traditions tied to womanhood, tied to their previous roles, and so they would dress in certain ways and attempt to take on roles that were previously reserved for men. This is perhaps why earlier in chapter 2, Paul speaks of the importance of dressing in a a manner that is in accordance with Scripture. In a similar way, there's a temptation to read these words and, and assume again that if you're unable to have a child, that you're somehow taken out of this plan. You can just do away with it. There are many temptations tied to it. Some which attempt to ignore the pain of birth and childhood, or childbirth, some which attempt to, to overemphasize the importance of childbirth. But in all of it, the basic call that Paul is giving is understanding the pain, still trust it. Understanding that this is hard, still understand that God has a specific design in mind, and even though it is all the more difficult because of the fall, it is still the plan that God has in store for us. And so that unchanging call then, according to Paul, is the same call that we see out of Genesis 3. It is to continue to march forward, to trust not your body or fellow man, but trust in God. Understanding that whatever position he's put you in, whether it's single, in which case you're not having a kid right now, right? Or if it's married, but you're unable to have a kid, or if it's married and you're able to bear children, well, then you, you do whatever God allows you to do. And so you strive to follow through with the calling God's given you, even though, even when, it is painful. And it's such an important part to remember, for it does again speak to the much larger story that Paul is trying to place this argument within. It's important to understand that as Paul is instructing men and women, he again is returning us not to what life was like in Ephesus, but he's bringing us back under the domain of God. He's reminding us that God has designed us a specific way. 
And so regardless of where God has placed in life, Paul is simply saying, you follow through with your calling and you do what you can in a manner that is pleasing to our Father. And so again, we read women will be preserved through the bearing of children, meaning women continue to be preserved by simply following through with the instructions God gives them. Again, as a caveat, this does not mean all women have to have children. It's just saying this is the basic order. Having said that, though, there still is a massive question that remains. That question being, okay, so what does this then look like? Many of you in here are either single, you're unmarried, right? You're, you're, you're too young to have a kid, whatever it is. And so the question is, okay, what does this actually look like for the rest of us then? What does faithfulness look like for the many people who fall outside of this very specific category? And to that, we see this final answer in the final point where Paul tells all, specifically women, to then walk in faith. Reading verse 15 once more, we read, But women will be preserved through the bearing of children if they continue in faith and love and sanctity with self-restraint. Here, Paul finally, by the grace of God, returns to language that's much easier to read. I think he does so, again, to, to couch this specific calling within that larger calling to remind us that this is nothing all that unique. And I would argue this is nothing all that complicated. The calling given to women is eerily familiar to the calling given to all men just within their specific role and station in life. For reminding us the means of salvation through Christ, Paul reminds us of the importance of persevering in faith and love and sanctity with self-restraint. As Paul finishes with this final point, he speaks of this language that is very familiar to all of us. For speaking to women, he says it's essential that you remain in faith. It's a word that's familiar to all of you. Faith, the idea of trust, of belief. In the very beginning of this letter to Timothy, Paul refers to Timothy as his true child in the faith. Nothing unique here, nothing, no grand revelation. Simply the call for women to maintain that trust. Maintain this trust in a good God that even if they do not understand the plan set before them, they understand God is sovereign, God is good. And so they trust him. As they practice that faith then, Paul says, women are to not only continue in faith, but also love. Love, again, a foundational attitude that is to be held. Love, as Jesus says, is foundational to all our service to him. If we love Christ, we keep his commandments. And so we view all of this in terms of the goodness of our God, in terms of the love that we have for him. And so women are called to do just that, be faithful, remain in love. And in addition to that, women are called to walk in sanctity. The word here is that of holiness. Again, it's a word that, that is used so oftentimes to summarize our overall calling. We are told elsewhere to be holy as God is holy. We are told elsewhere to make sure that we strive daily to look more and more like Jesus Christ and less and less like the world. And so by remaining in this role, in this case specifically marriage, Paul is saying you are able to continue to walk this path, pursue Christ, look more like Christ, and as such, you're able to pursue holiness. And finally, and I think this is where he's tailoring it to specifically the context of Ephesus, he says that women are to do this with self-restraint. The self-restraint, again, I think speaks specifically to the struggle that is happening there in Ephesus and a struggle that is equally present in our own culture today. 
Self-restraint speaks to this idea of propriety, of, of doing that which is acceptable in the eyes of the church, specifically doing that which promotes order, which promotes predictability. And it's an important word to consider, for as we've read through the entire chapter of 1 Timothy 2, this really is the end goal of Paul when he speaks to Timothy. To make this point clear, just turn back again to the very beginning of 1 Timothy 2. There, as he speaks to the entire church, Paul says, first of all, then, I urge that entreaties and prayers, petitions and thanksgivings be uh, be made on behalf of all men, for kings and all who are in authority, so that we may lead a tranquil and quiet life in all godliness and dignity. Why do you pray for your governing authorities? You pray for their salvation, and you pray so that you can live an ordered life so that you can flourish and remain faithful and not be distracted from the calling because of unnecessary persecution. And in some more way, as he jumps specifically to the worship within the church, in chapter two, verse eight, what does he say? Therefore, I want men in every place to pray, lifting up holy hands without wrath and dissension. Why would wrath and dissension be so dangerous within the church? Well, because it causes division. It's disorder. It's a lack of self-restraint. When that's allowed in the congregation, then it's gonna create division. It will sow seeds of chaos and division. It is on the heels of that then that Paul gets into the discussion of women's roles. And again, that role which revolves around modest dress and how they appear and then speaks to the role within church polity. The end goal is always the same. It's to ensure order. It's to ensure proper worship. It's to ensure that everything is done with this proper level of self-control. Again, not so that unjust men might rise up and rule with an authoritative hand, but so that the word can be proclaimed without distraction, the gospel can be proclaimed without ignorance, and so that men, women, children can all flourish in the faith. In other words, the basic call here, this call to submission, is simply another way of of ordering spiritual warfare of understanding here is what it looks like to fight. Here is what it looks like to engage with the enemy. That strategy, that engagement, at times sounds quite surprising and no doubt greatly challenges us at our very core. But ultimately as we walk through this, I hope again that you can say, you see it is all stemming not from a frustration with women in Ephesus, but it all stems from a, a healthy appreciation of God of the order he's instilled, and a desire, to, a, a, a desire to avoid the type of chaos that so oftentimes characterizes God's people. And so, in the case of women, this calling is simply walking through in the submissive spirit, properly understanding their role, and all the while striving to serve God as they do this. As we close this and consider all of this then, there's much that could be said for, for unbelievers I hope you understand that the central need presented here is not your preservation, but literally your salvation. Those outside of Christ are already living in the domain of darkness. And as a result, you are going to hell. Your only means of salvation, then, is not childbirth, it's Christ. And so, unbeliever, place your faith in Jesus Christ. Trust in his finished work on the cross. As always, if you have any questions, please let me know. For my brothers and sisters in Christ, I think the call of 1 Timothy 2, both to men and women, is the call to be humbled. 
for it's a reminder that we are all equally prone to being deceived. We're all prone to, to falling into some various levels of dissension, deception. And so let us take seriously that threat. As we do so, the call of Timothy, uh, the, the call of Paul to Timothy is to be thoroughly biblical, to think through these arguments, not just in terms of Ephesus, but in terms of the whole scriptures. And so let us be careful to ground everything in those overarching themes. As we do this, both men and women, but in this case, particular women, it's the call to trust God's design, to understand ultimately he is pleased, not because of some special thing you bring to the table, but because of how he has designed you. And so your call isn't to take on some new role. Your call isn't to overcome any physical struggle that you have. Your call is simply to trust God and to live out your life in obedience to him where he's placed you. And as we do this, the ultimate call is to serve with confidence, knowing that while this strategy might not make a lot of sense to us, it is the strategy employed by God. And it is by this strategy his kingdom is built, the gospel is proclaimed, and we his people will flourish. That being said, let me close in prayer. Father in heaven, again, we thank you for today. We thank you for this word from Paul to Timothy. God, as we read these words, it is again easy to become so confused by the strategy you've placed before us, God. But even if we cannot fully understand it, I pray, Father, that we might trust you all the more. Might we can see that you are infinitely wise, God, not us. Might we see that it is you in whom we place our trust, God, not our own abilities, not those around us, God. God, as we close this time, Father, we pray that we all might find greater comfort in the role you've placed us in, God. And as we say that, we know that, that some of our positions are more painful than others, God. And even in this theme of, of childbirth, God, there's so much pain tied into it. But I pray that ultimately the takeaway here is not disappointment in the role you've given us, God. But that ultimately it's peace. It's a reminder that you are enough, and it's a reminder that you're pleased by us as long as we simply are following you in love and faith and self-restraint, God. And so might that be the calling we walk away with, God. Might we all strive as a body to encourage one another? Might we strive to encourage the skills that you've given each one of us? But might we all with gladness Take on the role, Lord, that you command, whether that be in this case of submission, of service, or as we'll see in chapter three, that of leadership, God. Might we do it all understanding it is all equally glorifying to you, for it is all ultimately for your gospel. We love you, God, and we praise you. Bless our time as we close now in Jesus' name, amen.